Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. I've got a phenomenal guest for you today, Dr. Doug Kajijian, para-rescueman, Air Force Officer of the Year and Performance Physical Therapist is here today to talk to us all about mental performance under pressure. Now, there are a lot of phenomenal metaphors in today's interview, but at first glance, a lot of them maybe are not so obvious. So I've decided to do a little bit of a longer introduction here to highlight some of those metaphors that have a lot of that dovetail across all different fields, regardless if it's medicine, fitness, nutrition, entrepreneurship. So the first one is mastering fundamental skills of really becoming a master of the fundamentals, especially under pressure when cognitive function is not as sharp and we revert back to our behaviors and habits. The second one is minimizing complexity. How can you really whittle down your intervention or task to the simplest possible instruction, regardless if it's again, medical, fitness, nutrition, entrepreneurial. A hint is to ask the question why three times to really get to that underlying gap. Doug talks about worst case scenario in the military. And of course, these are life and death situations and therefore the preparation becomes really key, but it's often a great practice uh, for the rest of us in terms of a mental exercise to really free up unwanted worry and stress over a competition, presentation, or starting a business as we begin to realize that the worst case scenario is not nearly as detrimental as we would like to believe. Doug also talks about mental toughness, this concept which is abstract and whether or not it exists and of course how it is very context specific so that really resonates again with this idea of of practicing and mastering your fundamentals and also in the right context and scenario as it relates to your goals and your progressions he also talks about systematic progressions so regardless if you're trying to lose weight improve your athletic performance uh, achieve health goals you know, do you have a baseline from which to work and do you have a progression um, that you're working through? And typically that requires uh, a coach or professional to work with you and someone who's looking at the problem from 30,000 feet, so to speak. You know, if you're on the ground, if you're getting your hands dirty, then it's difficult to be able to do that as well as oversee the entire operation. Doug uses a great analogy of um, playing an instrument in an orchestra or being the conductor. And so who is that conductor that's overseeing your nutrition, performance, etc. goals? It becomes really, really crucial. And there's so many more great metaphors. The last one that I'll, I'll note here is this idea of feedback under pressure, one voice being really key, having one leader, and then after a stressful event, getting together with the team and having everyone's opinions valuable and, and, and being shared and feedback, etc. Whereas if we get into stressful situations and we have multiple people trying to lead, it can it can result in a lot of adverse outcomes. So again, a lot of phenomenal metaphors. Have a listen through a couple of times uh, to let them really sink in. As usual, you can check out Dr. Bub's forward slash podcast to check out my layups and performance hacks. And I hope you enjoy the show. My guest today is Dr. Doug Kajijian, a performance-based physical therapist who specializes in treating orthopedic injuries and chronic pain. He's a co-founder of Resilient Performance Physical Therapy and consults with professional sports teams and military and law enforcement special missions units. 
Before completing his doctoral studies, Doug was a pararescue man in the U.S. Air Force, where he trained and conducted operational missions with elite military units throughout the world. He's a nationally certified paramedic with advanced training in emergency trauma and wilderness medicine. And in 2015, he was selected as the non-commissioned officer of the year by the U.S. Air Force. Doug received his degree in biology from Brown University, an MA in exercise physiology, doctor of physical therapy from Columbia University. Doug, thanks so much for taking the time out today, bud. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mark. Thanks for having me. Just to give people a little bit of a a background, uh, we first met last year there at the uh, Leaders and Performance Conference in New York, uh, and I was blown away by a few things in in your talk with regards to uh, mental performance and and how you liaise that into even everyday therapy and training. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into um, not only the military, but the physical therapy side? Yeah, sure. So prior to uh, becoming a physical therapist and a performance-minded person, I was a pararescue man in the U.S. Air Force. So essentially what that is, it's the only unit in the U.S. military, at least, that's devoted to what's called personnel recovery or technical rescue. So personnel recovery is essentially, um, think of it as like 911 for the military. If if somebody gets separated from a unit or um, even like high-risk medical evacuations, pilot goes down, this is one unit that's devoted strictly to, to rescue. So uh, for a variety of reasons, that mission really appealed to me when I was completing my undergraduate studies. I was in the process of applying to medical school and was really interested in the medical side of things, but also enjoyed physical challenges. And this that particular job, uh, pararescue, seemed like kind of a good mix of both things. So it was an opportunity to practice emergency medicine in a pretty austere environment, get to be outdoors and do physically challenging things. So, um, you know, went through the process and, you know, no regrets. I mean, it, it exceeded my expectations as far as what the experience would be. And like you mentioned, it kind of, uh, I think, segues nicely into the physical therapy side of things and even into human performance. And can you give people an idea in terms of, you know, what a, what a day looked like when you were, when you were serving as a pararescue man? You know, if, if you had to go into, uh, on, a, on a mission, what, what did that look like? Yeah, so, I mean, there's, there's no typical day. I would say, you know, if you want to use a, a sports analogy, you're, you're trying to get ready for some kind of a mission or a competition, even if, if you want to call it that. So the first couple of years um, of my enlistment was devoted strictly to preparing and learning all of the requisite technical skills required to be a pararescue man. So, you know, you'll go to different schools in the military where they teach you how to parachute, how to scuba dive, um, how to survive in the wilderness or how to evade capture, um, the technical rescue skills, like how to extricate people out of aircraft or vehicles. There was quite a bit of emergency medical training because that was really our primary focus. Then there's the tactical piece, you know, so the marksmanship, small unit tactics, and then, and then combining all of those things, right? So it's like, you know, in a, in a sport, let's say American football or basketball or soccer, you've got, you know, your offense, your defense, and you, you have those different pieces, but you still have to put those pieces together. So the first couple of years were devoted to learning the individual pieces. And then once you get to a team, you work on combining those different pieces in a way that has a little bit more, I guess you would say, specificity. So once you get to a team, you're continually refining those different uh, technical skills, much like if you're a sport coach or a strength and conditioning coach, you're working on developing different bio, biomotor abilities. So you're working on you know, strength, speed, conditioning. And it's always this fine line between developing certain skills without other skills deteriorating. So it's kind of the same thing with us. I mean, our main objective on a mission was to uh, stabilize and medically treat people and get them to a higher level of medical care. 
So even all the fancy, like the scuba diving and the parachuting and fast roping on the helicopters, that's really just a way for you to get to get to the job. Um, and then, you know, once you get there, you still have to perform and do the medical piece. But because it's an austere environment, you, you need unconventional ways to access your, your patients, so to speak. So um, our, you could think of our, our kind of deployments as the competitive season. For the most part, our deployments are relatively predictable. We have set rotations where we know almost a year in advance when and where we're going to be going. So we kind of work backwards, much like a periodization model. And we'll start with, once again, refining those individual technical skills. And the closer we get to a deployment, we'll do what's called a, a pre-deployment spin-up or a workup where we're doing full mission profiles, which essentially amount to dress rehearsals where we're trying to simulate the kind of missions that we would go on overseas. And because a lot of the theaters that we've been operating in, we've been there for a decade or more, we have a pretty good sample size and, and database of the kind of missions that we're, we're more, are more probable to go on. Uh, and we'll, we'll try to rehearse for those missions. Obviously, you know, in the military, there's always the unforeseeable situation, but you still have to prepare for what the odds say you're likely to do. So we have a pretty good data sample to help us determine what what's the best way to utilize our training time. So we'll, um, like I said, the closer we get to a deployment, the more we'll work towards that specific piece, doing those full mission profiles or dress rehearsals. And then once we're on a deployment, um, we're on what's basically an alert cycle. So depending on where we are and what the operational tempo is, we might have half the team on a, on a day alert schedule, half the team on a night alert schedule, or if it's a little bit slower, people can pull kind of a 24-hour alert because they're not going to be getting pinged for missions uh, multiple times throughout the day. But when you're actually in, you know, on a deployment, um, it's really, it can be a lot of waiting around and a lot of doing nothing, or it can be a lot of excitement. So for the most part, you know, we, we typically know what the tempo is going to be before we arrive because we'll get a good, um, a good briefing from the team that we replace when we arrive in country. And based on what they tell us, that will kind of dictate what our alert posture is. So if it's going to be a place that we're really, we know we're going to be really busy, then you're basically, you're just kind of sitting, sitting by your gear, waiting for something to happen. And if you're on a really tight alert, um, we're, you know, in, in a busy place, they'll want you to be able to be on a helicopter within, um, let's say 10 minutes of when you get a call. So in those type of theaters, you're really, you're, you're standing by your gear waiting to get the call. And, and when you get it, um, you'll do a really quick briefing and then do, do the rest of your briefing or disseminate the rest of your information when you're in route, uh, to the objective in a slower place. Um, you might do much more training throughout the day because you're not as busy doing actual missions. Um, in a busy place, you're, you're maintaining your skills and staying sharp because you're doing the actual job so often. So it's kind of like a competitive season. If you're playing three or four games a week, the practices aren't going to be as, intense or as thorough because you're working on those skills, um, in a place where it's not as busy operationally, you're doing a lot more training to maintain your skills. It's always about finding that balance. But now, Doug, um, if I can jump yeah. in there now, you mentioned a great, obviously even getting to the area where you've got to jump in. And as you mentioned, being the nine one one for the military, that in itself is a, is a big statement. Um, you know, people commuting into work get, get frustrated because there's too many people on the streetcar or the tram or the subway, or if they're driving in, there's traffic and, and they get flustered and it impacts the rest of their day. So how do you guys, when you're having to rappel down a helicopter or scuba in to even just get to the place where then the action starts, you know, how, how do you guys maintain that sort of level, um, even keel in terms of your mental, um, mental disposition. 
Yeah, well, you know, you, you can make it sort of as mystical as you want, but really you're just trying to, to get somewhere. So we always try to make it or minimize the complexity, right? So, I mean, it's as far as like um, getting to work, they call that in the military um, insertion or extraction. So how do you get there and how do you leave? We spend a lot of our training time um, preparing for any kind, any kind of contingency as it pertains to insertion and extraction. So, for example, parachuting is something that requires a lot of training time, but it's not something you're very likely to do. But you have to, you have to devote a lot of time to it because there's very little margin for error if that's how you're you know, getting to, to a patient or to any kind of objective. Um, but for, I'll be honest with you, for the most part, I mean, in, in my military career, at least on actual missions, 99% of the time, you're really just flying in a helicopter and landing very close to where you're, where you need to be. So in that case, um, it doesn't require a whole lot of, uh, planning to, to get to the, to get to the patient. But if you're talking about a situation where for whatever reason you can't fly in because you don't want to give up the element of surprise, that's where it requires a lot more planning. And typically if we need, if we're on like a 10 minute hook, they're not going to expect us to plan a parachute mission um, or a more technical way of getting to a patient if we only have 10 minutes. Most of the times, the, those jump missions and the things that are really complex, you have usually 24 hours or more notice because the planning involved in those missions is so complex and there's gotcha. so many different, there's so many different um, things that can go wrong. You have to plan for a lot of different contingencies and that planning takes time and it's a lot more deliberate. So I guess to answer your question, um, when, we, when we're on a really tight hook, usually the way that we get to work isn't, isn't as complex because if you're just flying somewhere, it's almost like, hey, we're just going to drive to work and, and show up wherever we have to be. <laughs> nice. I mean, it's a, it's a little bit more obviously involved in that, than that. For sure. But, um, you know, we, 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 you, don't, you still need, no matter how dire the situation is, or if you're trying to get to somebody who's deteriorating medically, you still have to get there in one piece. So if you rush your planning as the rescue team um, and, you're, and you're not very deliberate with that, you're not doing the patient any kind of a service if you hurt yourself on the way to the objective, which is why you know, the more complex it is, the more, the more time that it takes to actually get there. Absolutely. Now, now leaders, you touched on obviously the, the team mentality and, and the amount of uh, members on that team. And when you get on site, just the communication and, and the systems involved with uh, you know, being successful on the mission. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So we, we talked a lot at the leaders conference about, you know, how to perform in high stress environments. And one of the things that the military is really good at is putting people systematically in a position to succeed. So if we're talking about, uh, we can even use a civilian analogy that actually transfers to what I did in the military. So I did a lot of emergency medicine, pre-hospital medicine in the military. And if you look at like the biggest emergency in civilian medicine is somebody goes into cardiac arrest. So uh, a patient's heart stops beating, he or she stops breathing. And in those situations, you've got to do a couple of things. You've got to get the person to breathe again. So you have to find a way to breathe for that person, whether it's inserting a breathing tube, um, doing mouth, you know, the mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. You've got to find a way to mechanically pump the heart. So if the heart's not pumping, that's why they do CPR. It's basically a way to, you apply pressure to the chest, and because of the physics involves, the heart pumps blood to, to the brain and to the vital tissues to keep those tissues alive. And then you need to provide some kind of electrical stimulus to the heart in the form of like a defibrillation or an AED um, to replace what the heart does naturally. So in all those, all those types of interventions, whether it's breathing, mechanically pumping on the chest, providing electricity, 
the people who are doing those interventions shouldn't be the ones who are overseeing the big picture. So the person who's running that cardiac arrest, they call it like a code, um, that team leader, if you will, whoever the head physician in charge, should not be the one who's doing a lot of the hands-on. Because when you do those hands-on skills, you become very myopic. You're doing something where there's some degree of technical precision involved. And the more hands-on you are, the more you can't see what everybody else is doing. So it's much like if you're, you know, if you're playing an instrument, you can't be a conductor because you're only really paying attention to what your individual piece is. So on our missions, we'll have you know, a team leader or a team commander or sometimes both. And those are the people who they're not you know, prying their way into the helicopter. They're not doing the hands-on medical skills. They're typically not shooting back at the enemy if there's any kind of um, tactical threat. They're the ones who are communicating on the radio, coordinating all the different air assets, figuring out which casualties have to go to which hospital. And they can have that kind of situational awareness because they're not hands-on. So what the military usually does pretty well is put people in positions where their responsibilities aren't going to interfere cognitively with what their end stage is. So if you're the primary medic on the mission, your job is to do medical treatment. It's not necessarily to coordinate you know, how you're getting out, how to coordinate all those different air assets and your, your ride home. Um, so I think, I think that that sort of diffusion of responsibility is really effective because you can't have people doing too many things in a high-stress environment. You want to minimize the degrees of freedom. And the more you can do that, the more you can streamline people's responsibilities, the better off they're going to be in high-stress scenarios. And as the team lead, that must be obviously difficult to um, to be seeing, witnessing, uh, whether it's the enemy or what's happening in terms of the the rescue, and and like you said, having to just evaluate that with a very calm uh, mind and be able to make the decisions and coordinate versus the, the the tacticians who are literally having to perform their single task. And how does a you know other strategies that you know the military uses or the team lead uses to be able to maintain that kind of composure under pressure? Yeah, for sure. So the, the first thing is that the team leader is usually the most experienced guy. So that team leader um, has gone through all of the requisite training. And at one point, that team leader served as the medic. He was the one who was extricating the, the people from the helicopter. So he knows all the individual jobs because, I mean, now at that point, the, uh, the, t- the team leader doesn't need to be as, as good a, a, you know, a practitioner hands-on-wise, as the people who are performing all those individual disciplines, but he still has to have an understanding of, of what they do. Um, so, like I said, it's the most experienced guy, has the requisite knowledge of how to perform each individual job, and because of that, he can maintain situa- situational awareness of what everybody is doing. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the team leader, like I said, is not doing a lot of the, the hands-on treatment or extrication. Because of that, the team leader can kind of take a step back and see, you know, hear all the instruments being played, so to speak, and have a better idea of what the big picture is versus the person who has a very specific responsibility. That's great. I mean, it's uh, phenomenal stuff. And, and that idea of, I've seen a recent post by you, this idea of mental toughness. Is that, um, you know, is that a true construct? Can we build mental toughness in people? Is it something that's innate or is, it, is that not really the correct, uh, the correct term? Well, I mean, to answer your question, as it pertains to mental toughness, I really don't know because it's it's spoken in the abstract and people intuitively kind of have an idea of what it means. Even if we could operationally define it and sort of prove that it exists, I don't think it's necessarily asking the right question. I think the right question to ask if we're talking about performing in high-stress environments is, 
how can you most adequately prepare people? And if you look at it from a preparation standpoint where, you know, what are, what, what skills and disciplines are involved at an individual and an organizational level, and then you work backwards, I think you're, you're going to perform much better in a high stress environment than trying to develop this abstract quality like mental toughness. So one of the things that I talked about at the, uh, at the leaders conference was that I think mental toughness, if it even exists and can be operationally defined is context specific. So a lot of times people turn to the military for this mental toughness type stuff because the civilian world is so detached from what the military does. But once, once you're in, immersed in that environment, it really isn't that mystical. It's really preparing like anybody else would. So whether it's preparing to, you know, uh, pitch in game seven of the world series or sing in an opera, you've got to develop the requisite skills and then develop those skills in increasingly specific environments until the training environment to the extent possible matches the operational or the real world, um, reality. So I talked about how, you know, if you took me, presumably somebody who's mentally tough because I went through, you know, a military selection course where I did push-ups all day, I was sleep deprived and, you know, went without food for a while. And I proved that, you know, I could endure uh, a decent amount of physical and psychological stress. But despite having gone through that, that training, if you had me fight in the UFC against somebody, you know, in my weight class, who's the world champion and and I'm not prepared for it and you measured my stress response, I can pretty much guarantee you that you'd see a much higher stress response in that environment than you would if you had me, you know, do my job in a more military specific context. That's so a great, we're, great we're, example. I love that. We're, you know, whereas the person in the UFC, if you said, okay, like you've got to go to Iraq or Afghanistan Get shot and you've got, you've got, you've got to do emergency <laughs> medicine on people. I mean, the difference is even though the, the training that, that I've received in the military isn't a hundred percent effective. I mean, you, things can still go wrong. At least I have some kind of a system or a process that gives me some kind of a locus of control. So I think the biggest thing that people sort of fear in a high stress environment is that lack of control or the fear of failure. And the military is really good at sort of instilling, um, you know, an adherence to different types of procedures, trusting systems, trusting your teammates. So that, that sort of trust in the process is what gives you confidence, much like I'm sure that the trust that a, a UFC champion has in his or her process you know, training as a martial artist from a time, from a very young age, and then having previous fights or even title experiences under his or her, his or her belt, those things obviously really help. So I think that, you know, if we're talking about sort of performance anxiety and fear in a high stress environment, preparation is the best way to mitigate that. And when you look at it from that standpoint, what the military does shouldn't be that mystical relative to what other high performers do. Yeah, that notion of systems. I mean, when we look at even in a medical model, um, people trying to improve their health or lose weight or even in terms of strength and conditioning, um, oftentimes when people hit plateaus or struggle to to make progress and hit roadblocks, um, it's sort of a shotgun approach of trying this method or that method of, of training or eating or supplementation or medication. And there's a, sort of a real lack of a systems approach, especially in the preventative side um, in medicine and, and sometimes as well in, in sport and even high-level sport. Can you talk a bit about, um, you know, de- developing systems? Is it getting back to that, asking that right question or, or, or what strategies um, or philosophies do you have on that front? Yeah. So once again, we're talking about high stress environments. Um, having checklists and procedures is really helpful. So for example, um, in a parachuting situation, 
the worst thing that can happen, obviously, is that your parachute doesn't open. So there's a specific emergency procedure that we brief prior to every training or real-world jump, and we've rehearsed the emergency procedure, I mean, throughout our careers, hundreds or if not thousands of times. So we know that when that goes wrong, we also brief, okay, how do we recognize an emergency procedure? What, you know, what does the canopy look like when um, an emergency procedure is warranted? And so we've rehearsed it so many times, even when we're on the ramp of the plane, right before we jump, you'll see guys sort of, whether it's mentally or physically, rehearsing the emergency procedure so that if something goes wrong, they know exactly what to do. Um, and, you know, the, the point of having these emergency procedures is not to turn people into robots. It's so that under a really high stress environment, when you don't have time to think and do things cognitively, you can at least rely on a process that's been vetted and developed um, under much more under much safer conditions. So I've had one, they call it a cutaway in my career where I was doing a training jump and I pulled my main, I deployed my main parachute and for whatever reason, um, it deployed in such a way that I could only release one of my steering toggles and the other one was essentially stuck. And that caused my parachute to be in a, a perpetual spin that I couldn't counter by steering with my risers. Essentially I had an uncontrolled canopy. So I had a good canopy over my head and if there were no obstacles on the ground, I could have landed safely, but we were over a highway and a bunch of trees. So having an uncontrollable canopy above a highway is not a good thing because there's a chance that instead of landing on the drop zone, I would have landed on the highway or in a tree. So I, ha I had to cut away my main canopy, and the decision was really easy. I mean, like I said, we, we rehearsed it a bunch of times. I knew what the procedure was. I had the, um, I don't want to call it muscle memory because that's not the right term, but the, uh, the motor memory, if you will. To, uh, to execute the, the cutaway procedure, and I didn't even have to, have to think about it. So in a high-stress environment, being able to limit those degrees of freedom and rely on checklists and procedures is really helpful. The same thing occurs in civilian emergency medicine. You know, I'm sure even you know in the environment you work in, if somebody were to pass out on the court or go into cardiac arrest, you, you run through your ACLS algorithm. It's a checklist that it's not designed to have a lot of room for interpretation because it's an emergency the time to think and deliberate over things cognitively is when you you know when it's not a real world emergency. So those procedures and checklists are really helpful in high stress environments. Um, I also think what's really helpful the military does well is the, just sort of the continual critique and feedback. So every training mission um, is 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 done, and there is what's called an after action review. During an after action review, and this usually occurs right after any training or real world mission. The entire team gets together around a table, and even though one person is moderating the discussion, anybody can, can, can speak up and say um, what went wrong or what could have been better. So it's, it's, a, it's one of the few times even in the military where rank is inconsequential, and anybody regardless of rank can, can speak up and provide an input. And it's really helpful because even, even the team leader and the most experienced guy a lot of times might not have seen something that the junior guy on the mission saw just because the junior guy might have been the only person to have that set of eyes on whatever it is that needs to be pointed out. So that kind of transparency and sort of, um, you know, the, the minimization or the mitigation of hierarchy is also really important. Now, in a high-stress environment, you need that hierarchy because if bullets are flying, you can only have one conductor. You don't want everybody sort of doing his or her own thing. But after a mission, when there's no, there's no threat, that's the time to, um, to allow more degrees of freedom, allow more people to speak up. So it's always this fine line between you know, having more control, more adherence to systems and, and protocol, and then 
taking a step back and allowing for more complexity. So I, I think that's where the art of it comes in. You can't be a robot and totally rigid and procedurally oriented, but at the same time, you can't always have you know everybody piping up and everybody taking a leadership role because then that leads to chaos. That's what the military, I think, does really well is, is having those systems and trusting those systems in high-stress environments, but also continually deliberating and trying to refine those systems regardless of rank when the situation isn't as dire. And that, I mean, that seems to dovetail... Uh, right into you know high high performance and, and and sport and whatnot. A few things you you said there really uh, struck me with the you know this idea of even thinking and overthinking. And of course in, in in sport and depending on the type of sport, especially if it's something from a static position like a tennis serve or a, a golf swing or something, you know overthinking things under pressure uh, tends to lead to poorer results. And there's that sort of famous quote by Mike Tyson: "Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face." Um, and that idea of under pressure, how, how people respond. So, you know, is it just that idea of, of really trying to make p- the practice uh, time, um, you know, mimic the intensity and, and, and have that same level of, of focus as, as game day? Because, you know, oftentimes, you know, various teams, the, the practice intensities and scheduling can be, can be varied. You mentioned even during the course of a, a season, an NBA season or a, a w- baseball, whatever it might be, long seasons, it's difficult to, to add in all that practice time. So, what do you see in, in the people that you treat in terms of uh, some, some strategies there to help um, improve that reaction under pressure? Well, I think that's where it's really important to have very systematic training progressions. So you can take you know, a really complex parachute insertion where um, someone's doing it at night with equipment strapped to his body under night vision goggles into a hostile area. But obviously you don't start at that point. So when we learn to parachute in the military, the first thing you do is just master the body position on the floor because that position, those joint angles, that motor control is foundational to anything that you're going to do in a more complex environment. And you don't progress in your training until you've mastered that body position. Once you can do it on the floor, then you'll go into a wind tunnel, which is basically a giant fan that propels you upward or doesn't let you fall if you want to look at it that way. And you master the body position in a very confined environment where if you do it wrong, There's way less margin for error than there is in the sky. But the idea is in a controlled environment, you're learning how to master that body position. Once you've mastered that in the the wind tunnel, then you'll do a jump where you have an instructor holding on to your jumpsuit. Once you master that, you do a jump with no equipment. You're by yourself. And once you master that, you might add some equipment. And then you'll add night. But But you can't skip steps. Having those foundational skills is really important. So go, you know, I actually played tennis competitively. So going back to your tennis analogy, if it's a really pivotal point in a match, there's a lot of things that you can think about and fixate on. And I wasn't always great at doing this. I mean, it's easier, it's easier, it's easier said than done. Awesome, and I, sure. I actually, I actually wish that I'd kind of had the perspective uh, back when I was playing that I do now. For sure. I was kind of, a, I was kind of a head case. But um, you know, if, if you're talking about like, okay, it's a, it's a pivotal time in a match, you're serving, you can think about all the things you can't control, like well. What if I shank my serve? Where's the person going to return the serve? What if this? What if that? But I also know from having hit quite a few serves in my life that, you know, if you just focus on one cue, let's say the ball toss, and you think, okay, all I've got to do is I want to get my ball toss in this spot. A lot of times doing that one thing properly and focusing on that one cue has a very downstream effect on optimizing all the other motor patterns that contribute to the skill. And you know this from coaching people, right? Like, you can, you can over-cue people to death. A lot of times, 
just find that one cue that sets up a lot of different things and facilitates that that chain reaction can be very helpful. So I think in, even even in sport, it's just when it comes to execution, focus on what you can control and think about one or two things at most and, 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 and try to find cues that are relevant from the standpoint that it, if you do that one thing right, it facilitates all the other things that have to go well for you to perform the skill properly. So that, does that kind of make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, I totally agree. That idea of yeah, focusing on the process rather than the outcome is definitely, it's easy to, easier said than done, like you, like you mentioned, but it's amazing how once you do get a mastery of that, how how performance starts to flow. And, you know, you mentioned something else. I just wanted to get your take on, you know, today in the NBA and the NFL and things, there's, uh, you know, quarterbacks in the NFL are, 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 are put into motion, into playing, at a, you know, rather than sitting on the bench for a few years and learning. Like, uh, likewise, in the NBA, young players are, are thrust into action at a very young age, and it's almost like they're being evaluated in those first few years without, as you mentioned in the military, this sort of preparation and, and, and doing the landing on a flat ground and in the daytime and then in the evening. So do you have any observations on, on are, you know, are we missing, you know, are players maybe falling through the cracks? Is, is it a, do the good organizations have a handle on, on, on properly layering people through? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a, a multifaceted question because the more talented a team is, the less of a need they're going to have to play those young and experienced players. Um, I mean, you would hope that when someone gets to a professional level, they would at least have sort of the the fundamental skills and the requisite skills down pat. As you and I both know, that's not always the case. Um, I think there's nothing wrong with thrusting young players into high level competition you know, at the pro level early on, provided that the expectations are manageable and realistic. So there's no substitute, obviously, for like if you're an NFL quarterback playing playing a game at NFL speed. Um, and a lot of times, you know, the, the offenses that work really well in college don't work as well in the pros. So you can have a supremely talented quarterback who ran a different system in college that may have very little carryover into the program. And I, I would I think that, you know, to a point it can be helpful to sit on the bench for a few years and watch a more experienced player. But even then, um, to get those, get the motor skill and, and develop the motor patterns at, at game speed, you don't develop that by watching, which is why I think you're seeing a lot more quarterbacks and people who are in you know, um, highly cognitive and, and, and d- difficult roles being thrusted in early on. Because I think a lot of these teams look at it like, you know, even if we wait three years, there's still going to be a two-year learning curve when they actually have to physically execute the offense under game-like conditions. So once I think that it's fine to do that as long as you allow these people to fail. Um, but I think now a lot of times, you know, the, these, these players are thrust into competition and they're, they're given like one year. And if they don't, if they're not playing at a pro bowl or an all-star level after one year, they give up on these people. And I, I think, you know, that's just as egregious as sitting somebody for five years. So I think once again, it's, it's a happy medium. If you're going to play people right away, um, you almost have to look at it like, yeah, it's a game, but you're, you're, what are your objectives? Like, look at it almost like a practice, and what are you trying to develop in these games? Because if you're playing a rookie in a really um, prominent position, you're probably not going to win, you know, win a championship. Um, and and if, if you th- unless the rookie is supremely talented or the parts around that inexperienced player are, you know, like, like a team has a really good defense and really good players at other positions, it takes the pressure off the, uh, the quarterbacks. If you look at like the Dallas Cowboys this year, I mean, I think that you know, they had a great offensive line. They had, um, they had a great running attack. 
So that allowed their quarterback, you know, not to take away from what the quarterback achieved, but that quarterback probably had less responsibility than a rookie who didn't have as much offensive talent around him. Absolutely. So, you know, it's, again, it's a multifaceted answer, but I think that teams have to put these inexperienced players in positions to succeed. And if they, if they don't have that talent around those players, they have to be okay with some level of failure and instill in that player that failure is still just, you know, it's a way to, it's a way to learn, um, and, and cultivate future success. But the expectations have to be manageable and realistic. That sort of dovetails into my next question for you, that idea of, of, of team in the military as well and, and effectively having that one leader um, during the mission or on game day, so to speak, but afterwards in practice or in the debrief, you know, everyone being on the same level in terms of their input as to what, what happens. And you know, obviously in team sport, you know, the great teams like the, the Spurs and the Patriots, et cetera, you know, seem, seem to have that anyway from a distance. Uh, but a lot of teams and, and in various sports, like let's say basketball, where one player has such a big impact on the game, that can be a tough thing uh, to make everyone sort of equal on that team uh, level. Any any strategies? Any any thoughts on how to develop that that team um, mentality? Yeah, I mean, I think where it can be really tough. And look, I think it's unrealistic to say that every player should be treated equally, because I mean, there's obviously a huge disparity of of wealth as far as salaries go, um, as far as even value to the team. Now, if you, if you, if you draft a supremely talented player and from day one, like, let's say it's a team like the Patriots or the Spurs, I think that that star player is much more likely to buy into that team first mentality versus if you, let's say you, you are that, that team that really instills the accountability and the team first type thinking but you sign a free agent who is at a team where, um, you know, that person was the star and was treated totally differently than everybody else. Then it become a lot more difficult to indoctrinate somebody who's used to being treated, uh, as if, as if he or she is special into that new type of culture. But, you know, I think that players ultimately want to win. I think most players recognize that even from a selfish standpoint, winning is what's going to make them more marketable, increase their earning potential. So I think a lot of times it's, it's how you deliver the message. Um, and ideally, you, would, you wouldn't want to have to, quote-unquote, indoctrinate a player. You want to have players who believe in that, in that team-first type mentality. So if you have a star player, you don't want that star player to receive special treatment in front of the team because everyone on the team is going to see that. And ultimately, um, people, you know, there, there needs to be, I, I would say, some some absolute standard of what's permissible from a behavioral standpoint within a team, and and then when it when it's not as explicit, that's where maybe you can make some exceptions on a case by case basis. So, for example, if you have if you have somebody uh, you know on, on your team murder somebody uh, you know outside of a team setting, obviously that's an absolute where regardless of who it is, you're not gonna you're not gonna pull strings to to cover that up. But if you have somebody who's generally very very well behaved. And has one slip up where it's not something that's, you know, that that egregious from a behavioral standpoint. That might be where you would look the other way or say, hey, you know, you screwed up this time. Don't let it happen again. And and that person who's behaved well consistently might have a little more rope to hang him or herself. Whereas the person who has a pattern of bad behavior and commits the same offense, that might be where a coach says, okay, like, you know, I'm drawing a line in the sand. Now you're suspended, or now we're going to find you more money. 
So I think it is important to look at things on a case-by-case basis, but at the same time have some, if you want to call them, standard operating procedures or emergency procedures where you have some absolutes that you don't want people to cross. I think a lot of the reason, even star players, why they get away with what they get away with is core communication from the leadership. So if the leadership makes it very clear and explicit from day one of arriving on site at that facility that these are the things that we tolerate and these are the things that we don't, regardless of how good you are, that player has been warned. So when he commits an offense, it's not a surprise when that player is penalized for the betterment of the team to demonstrate, you know, I mean, from a disciplinary standpoint, if, if a leader or an executive on the team shows that he's willing to, to punish a star player and a very valuable player, that, that obviously, you know, resonates with the rest of the team that, okay, well, if it's not tolerated in so-and-so, it's not going to be tolerated in me. So you need to draw those lines, but at the same time, I think be very clear from a communication standpoint so everybody knows what the expectations are. I think where teams and leaders get in trouble is when they don't define those expectations and then somebody does something and it's like, well, what do we do because, you know, this is so-and-so, so-and-so scores 30 points a game or three touchdowns a game. Um, how do we handle it? I think if you establish those guidelines up front, it makes it much easier to handle. Yeah, I think it's a great point for, you know, whether you're running a clinic or you're an entrepreneur or a leader in the business world, like you mentioned, of just um, – setting those boundaries and being really clear with the expectations up front is, is a major part of, of setting that, that team environment and having everybody sort of buy in. So that's a, that's a great point there. Now, you know, for yourself in terms of, you know, what are, what are some of the philosophies and, and things that are now dovetailing into your practice and treating, uh, treating folks and athletes, you know, whether it's from the military or just from your studies of, of some of the bigger rocks for you when you're trying to get people back on the straight and narrow in terms of either recovery from injury or performance. Yeah, I, I think um, having some kind of a system that you trust is really important. So, you know, as a medical provider, I mean, I tr- I see a lot of people who are in pain for whatever reason. I mean, it could be they had a traumatic injury. It could be a chronic thing where you can't point to any kind of tissue pathology. And pain is obviously a very complex phenomenon where, like, I, I cannot say in good faith that I totally understand pain. And I don't, I don't even think it's intellectually honest to say that, that medical providers really treat pain because pain's kind of like metal toughness. It's so context-specific and so abstract that how do you really treat pain directly? But what I do know is I have an end state that I want somebody to be able to get to, and I have progressions for whatever that end state is. So if it's a field sport athlete who has to run at high velocity and change direction, well, I know for, for one that there are certain joint angles and positions and motor control levels that have to be attained um, in, a, in a lower speed or a less, less dynamic environment before that person can, can, can progress to you know, the specificity. Um, so I, you know, just from a, a foundational standpoint, what, even if that person's in pain, what kind, of, uh, what kind of guarding is that person doing? What kind of threat is that person's system under? How do I mitigate that threat to at least achieve those, those foundational joint angles, even if it's passively in the beginning? Because if they can't achieve those passive joint angles without pain, whether it's through manual therapy or exercise or visualization or whatever it is that you could do, there's no way they're going to be able to do that, obviously, in a, in a higher stress environment. Um, so if you start out even in the very beginning when people are very acute, how do we restore these joint positions without exacerbating symptoms? And then once you can achieve those positions, 
how do we add load, add speed, add complexity, add decision-making, um, add unpredictability, and you have those progressions that you can trust, it makes the pain that we don't really understand much less confounding. So once again, I mean, you don't want to be totally rigid in adherence to your system, but you have to have, in my opinion, a system. I think that one of the things you see a lot from the, the people who, I don't even want to call it the pain science community because I think there are a lot of people who appreciate pain science and the limitations of it, but the people I think that who take the pain science type thinking to an extreme are almost like movement nihilists where they say, it doesn't matter how somebody moves, anything can make anybody better, and they don't have any kind of a, of a movement progression. And I, I don't think that that's the right strategy either. Once again, I don't think that you should be totally rigid in adherence to a protocol or to your progressions. But if you have no progressions, then it's like, well, what do you do? Where do you start? So I, again, I think it's that having, having a system, but also that, that art of coaching and that art of medicine. So that the progressions is, is huge. And then having standards where you don't let people progress until they've, they've mastered what it is that you want them to accomplish. I mean, for, to give you an example, you know, I, I work with a lot of um, CrossFit competitors, CrossFit athletes who will say, you know, my shoulder hurts when I do a muscle up. And I'll be like, well, let me watch you do a muscle up. And they'll do a muscle up. And then I'll, I'll break it down into the components and I'll say, okay, well, let me see you just statically support yourself on the rings with your arms extended. And they have trouble just doing that. Let me see you statically support yourself at the bottom position of a dip or the transi transitional point in a muscle up. They have a really hard time doing that, even if they're asymptomatic. So they don't have the motor control to do the foundational elements of the movement. But for whatever reason, when they use a lot of momentum and they use kind of like an impingement strategy where they use momentum to get, to their, get their joints to end range and rely on connective tissue elasticity to allow them to achieve the movement versus having you know, more, more motor control and putting their joints in healthier positions, um, no wonder your shoulder hurts, right? So I'll be like, look, you can't even do these things isometrically, and yet when you rely on momentum and sort of connective tissue elasticity, you can complete the movement. So I'll say, yeah, like you can do muscle-ups and you can, you can meet your numbers, but until, price, you, right? until you can achieve these foundational movements and like you meet the quote-unquote standard, you really haven't earned the right to do muscle-ups. I mean, again, the brain will always find a way or the nervous system will always try to find a way to achieve a task, but at what cost? And that's where I think having standards in my line of work in physical therapy and sports medicine, movement standards where, again, yes, there are no absolutes in movements, but I think there are principles that one can adhere to that you can safely say, okay, if somebody is missing 20 degrees of passive shoulder flexion on the table – and he or she goes to overhead press or do pull-ups, maybe there's no absolutes in movements as far as, yes, that person will find a way to overhead press or do a pull-up under load, but I don't think it's necessarily authentic movements that authentic movement that's very joint-friendly. So restoring that ability to pack the, passively and actively achieve that full range of motion, whether in, in shoulder flexion for an overhead movement, very many times eliminates pain in an overhead movement. It's not rocket science, again, but it's, it's adhering to those procedures. Um, and I think that people, where they go astray is they either have no procedure or they're, 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 they're such artists where they're like, well, having a procedure and an algorithm is beneath me. We're just going to wing this. And I think you get in trouble when you kind of think 
at one extreme or the other end of the continuum. That's a great point. And it's even that idea of, you know, completing a muscle up of just being so outcome based versus, as you're mentioning, just being able to focus on all the, the, the process of it and being able to accomplish all of the tasks, uh, all the skills required to, to complete it, to then say you're actually doing this with proper form. And as you mentioned, kind of earn the right to do, uh, do the muscle up. So that's, uh, that's a great point. Uh, Doug, I really appreciate, uh, the time, man. I could, I could totally go down this road for another hour or two, but I know, uh, I know we're tight for time here. The, the burning question I know all our listeners are are, are, are really wanting to know, man, is, is, is really your, your coffee habits. How do, how do you uh, do you take a morning <laughs> coffee? How do you take your coffee in a day? We have a lot of uh, avid avid coffee drinkers on the on the podcast here. Oh, uh, well, it's it's pretty simple. I yeah, I do like coffee and I like it black, nothing in it. So uh, pretty pretty simple, no oh, frills. Awesome, you one cup a day guy, a couple cups. What's, uh, uh, what's the usually like 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 a one cup a day guy? Yes, yeah, so as long as it's black and as long as it's hot, I'm happy. Perfect. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. As always, you can find all the links and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at drbubs. Of course, if you enjoy the show, subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. The Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcasts.